Welcome to the Skies Were Under podcast, hosted by me, Rachel Wright. This podcast is created by and for parents of people with disabilities and the many practitioners who support us. It's just for all of us who are trying to get from one end of the week to the other whilst bridging the gap between the life we expected and the one we're actually living. Hi, we're back again for another episode of the Skies Rwanda podcast, where I get to chat with my wonderful friends, Sarah Clayton and Lucy Parr. My name's Rachel, and I'm a qualified nurse. I know that sounded a little bit like I had a deep, dark confession. I'm also the parent of three lovely young men, or boys. My eldest son has cerebral palsy and some complex medical needs. I've written a memoir, which is called The Skies I'm Under, and my... I'm the founder and director of Born at the Right Time. Each week I'm joined on the podcast by Lucy Parr, who works in a school as a Senko while she pauses her PhD in educational psychology. She's got four children and her third son has a chromosome duplication, which means he isn't verbal, he's got autism, high sensory needs and really complex epilepsy. I also get to chat to my very good friend, Sarah Clayton, who is the CEO of Simple Stuff Works. She has four children and her eldest daughter suffered a brain tumour at the age of six. Then, as a consequence of treatment and complications, she's now a beautiful young woman with learning disabilities and various medical needs. Last week, we talked about the goldfish bowl and in doing so, our plans for the next couple of episodes changed. This week, instead of our planned topic, we're going to go deeper into that goldfish bowl and the tensions that can surround the relationships we have within the goldfish bowl and the people outside who are there to support and enable our families to live well. It is such a massive topic which impacts every single parent of a child with additional needs and every single practitioner who works with people who love those with complex needs. It's inescapable. And it was so big that we need to cover two episodes. So let's begin our first episode thinking about the challenges in relationships between practitioners and professionals. Hello, and welcome to the Skies Were Under podcast. I've discovered every time I introduce anything else outside of the Skies Were Under podcast, I want to introduce the Skies Were Under podcast, (laughs) even if I'm doing training or if I'm doing just a hello to people. I'm hello and welcome to, even if it's the postman who's just bringing the parcel or anything, I'm like, hello and welcome to the Skies Were Under podcast. Um, it's very disconcerting for my children who wake up in the morning and go, hello, and welcome to Tuesday and the Skies Wonder podcast. Anyway, hello, and it's lovely to have you all here. We're on episode 14. I don't want to very break exciting. it to you. Don't want to, don't want to get anyone too upset, but we're nearing the end of this season. <laughs> we'll find out our fate soon, Lucy. Yeah, we'll find out our fate. That's true, whether we'll be axed. The reality is we're all going to find out our fate because I can't sustain this podcast the way it is. So uh, there needs to be some creative thinking that makes this possible to do some more. But let's have uh, a version of hope that means that's possible. Uh, Let's park that 
future of the podcast mm-hmm. um, and say hello to Sarah and Lucy. Hello. Hello. How hello. are you all? Uh, well, I'm okay, but currently beneath my feet, Mousegate is happening. <laughs> um, so... They're in my lounge. So, okay, let's start at the beginning. Last night at three o'clock in the morning, um, we had previously discovered in the last few days that we have a mouse. But since been told by the lovely Sarah, you don't just have one you mouse. You never have one never mouse. So no, one. She's, she's correct. Mm-hmm. Because like last zits. night, yep. I know, three yep. o'clock in the morning, I wake up to my husband <laughs> leaning over me and turning the light on on my side of the room. And I like turn round into his face. Oh, like, and sounds he's... like a really romantic moment. <laughs> no, no, no. And then you he's wake like, up from slumber and turn no. <laughs> to greet the man of your dreams. And he's like, mm. and he like so puts think... his finger on his lips. I need to do. It. I was going to say, I need to do an audio script. Lucy yeah. is now placing <laughs> the, her index finger vertically across her lips and nose. And I'm like, shh, yeah. Yeah, shush. Basically, shush with no noise. So I'm like, okay, I hold my breath. And then you can hear this little scrabbling noise. <laughs> and so then I watched Stu stealthily approach the source of the noise, um, which is my bag because I'm you... a slovenly woman and I'd left a crisp packet in there. So, so but in this case, this was quite this was quite useful in this case because you'll see why. So he, he like stealthily approaches my bag, with the, which had the unbeknown empty crisp packet in and the mouse is rooting around in there and he just stands there for a little second and then all of a sudden this swift massive swift movement boom and he's got the mouse in the bag <laughs> so he like goes outside and releases the mouse and who would have we, run and three o'clock Straight in the morning well, he, he apparently ran away, but I'm not sure if he ran away because then I come home today and, well, I got a little video clip of a mouse in my living room from my daughter. We and, could and share then, that on Instagram when this and, gets released. And then, Mousegate episode one. And then Stu was like, shut the lounge door now in big capital letters on the on the family group chat and, and so, so they're all stuck so they're all stuck in the lounge as I walk in Blossom was the only one who didn't get stuck in the lounge so Blossom is running back and forth to the garage fetching fishing nets and others and head torches and all this equipment feeding it through the window where the to mouse is in the lounge the necessary yeah. paraphernalia to remove yeah. so believe me right now they're oh, trying no. to get the little mouse that either is the same one from last night that just came back in or is, in, is another one as yeah. one of his little mouse buddies so, introduce think, the different yeah. um, the different people on this call so we have Lucy the vegan <laughs> the hippie vegan <laughs> who's like it's a lovely little mouse and then there's me who's like a a pretend vegetarian like <laughs> occasionally like tries really really hard but utterly fails um, and so my uh, mouse escapades in recent years have been like let's just try and encourage them out let's just let's kill them all let's just kill them all whereas Sarah where do you stand on my well only only because I only asked immediately have you got the killer traps because you might as well just go straight for the killer traps. Because I've done that thing where you take the mouse for a walk down the canal and, re- and release it. Like a mouse on a little and lead. The, honestly, the little buggers are back before you are. 
Let's just they're really. I mean, to be fair, they are really cute. They are really. It's a really cute mouse. You know, it's and you a are super Disney cute mouse. So has big Disney mouse ears. It's very nice, <laughs> but but I don't really want it in my house. And it hid well, down through lots of our food and all of that stuff. And the, so. and the stuff that they bring around on their feet. No, they mm-hmm. will. They will not be one mouse or two mouse. No. Give it three or four weeks, and there will be many, many, many mm. mice. And Blossom ate a bowl of cereal yesterday, and then found a floating mouse. <laughs> No, it's fine. She's okay. She's she's okay. She she scrapped the bowl of cereal once she had discovered said mouse poo, so it was fine. But um. (laughs) (laughs) We have changed our plan for today. So we were thinking um, of doing a different topic. But after our goldfish bowl episode, the previous episodes when we were talking about the goldfish bowl and the impact that um, being scrutinised and watched and the discourse that can happen in light and the attention that can happen in relationships, um, we had some communication with um, parents sort of um, bringing to light some of the more extreme versions of this where actually things really break down between practitioners and family and we all know there's sometimes it gets onto the news doesn't it sometimes families end up in court and trying to change the decisions of healthcare professionals or social care because they Mm -hmm. feel their child's needs are not being met or their views as parents are not being considered. My, My bag, the thing that I really care about is trying to bridge the gap, is trying to connect and um, enable families and practitioners to work together but it does feel like an uphill struggle mm-hmm. and I just wondered whether by looking at the extreme which is an extreme we need to accept that the majority of parents are wonderful parents doing the best for their children the majority mm-hmm. of practitioners are wonderful practitioners doing the best for mm-hmm. the families that they serve but we also know there are you know actually very dangerous both parents and practitioners you know mm-hmm. just because we uh i've got qualifications or the parents of a child with disability doesn't give us a personality transplant or doesn't mm-hmm. suddenly make us mother Teresa. we all make mistakes we all do things wrong but w- if we looked at these extreme cases where things have got so bad and ended up in court could we unpick them slightly and mm-hmm. have a greater understanding as to some of the underpinning fears and toxic mm. um, behaviours that lead us down this path, that take, takes us from this concept of a goldfish bowl, where we are sort of communicating and um, feeling like there is lots of pressure and there's lots of tension, to a, a proper meltdown of the system whereby mm-hmm. no one's being served and it's bringing everyone down with us. What's the underpinning reasons for mm-hmm. that to happen? So can we start with ourselves? Because it's always best to start with ourselves. Um, <clears throat> I want this very much, we're all, um, all three of us are parents, but all th- three of us are practitioners and all three of us have been in situations where um, communicating with patients, families, um, uh, others have made it has been have been difficult 
you know, mm-hmm. from both sides of the bed. We've also all talked to practitioners and been from a family point of view, find it really difficult to communicate our needs and for that to be done well without losing our <laughs> So starting where we're at, um, what are your biggest fears or what are our biggest fears, the three of us sitting around this podcast now? That makes it sound like the podcast is some little wooded wood burner sitting around the campfire podcast what's our biggest fear um that underpins the relationships that we have with practitioners and services i think my biggest fear would definitely be that practitioners are not prioritizing my child's needs on their agenda because they've got too many other things going on so that basically mm. my child slips off the radar um and my child's needs are not prioritized because perhaps there comes another child who has more extreme needs or is presenting in a different way which means that he is he or she is disrupting things more dramatically and then my child doesn't get what they need and on the flip side of that as a practitioner that's exactly like I literally dealt with that situation today where I was firefight I I sat down to do a speech and language referral um, for a child who chooses not to speak at all in the school context and every five seconds I would get walkie-talkied to go and deal with a child an extreme behavior so that is a perfect example of where a child is not getting a need met because I do not have, there's not five of me basically. And I cannot be dealing with the firefighting stuff while also dealing with the preventative stuff and supportive stuff that's actually going to make a difference to another child. And because that the other child who I need to do the speech and language referral for, for because they are not kicking off or you know making life difficult in the same way as other children they are not getting what they need and Mm. that's that's my biggest fear as a parent and a professional and I I genuinely am stumped on (laughs) what we do about that other than recruiting thousands more practitioners that's really tricky yeah it is and I think that um perfectly embodies it isn't that you as parent or you as practitioner aren't doing your best. In some ways, because you're a practitioner, that fuels your anxiety because you know the reality of what it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's yeah. not because you're sitting in your ivory <clears throat> tower as a parent mm-hmm. going, well, they're not doing that and that's what they're supposed to be doing and that's what they're supposed to be doing. It's because you, you're living on both sides that means you're like, I know what this is like. I know how hard this is. I know the intention is not yeah. enough the intention is not enough from a practitioner point of view and love is not enough from a parent yeah. point of view you know love doesn't give me more hands more hours more capacity none of those things and for me i'm i'm constantly thinking about i'm um, advocating and trying to give my child a voice within a system like you say lucy that has got so many other voices that are louder and more dominant Mm-hmm. but I'm trying not to piss people off because I recognize that also as a practitioner I the people that I'm most likely to do things for the people that I want to work with and collaborate with and don't find stressful so <laughs> I know that yeah you know I want you know I think we talked about it before didn't we Sarah where you were like um you know buddying everybody within the hospital because you want to make everyone their friends because you want to make everybody um you know 
you to be the one that everyone really likes. So they do all the things that you want. Yeah, like give her a medicine on time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those really outlandish in a really busy, things. Yeah, but it's that thing, isn't it? Really, really busy ward. Um, and I think from for me, it's, it's really similar to, to both of you. For for me, it's that, again, it's that tightrope thing of advocating effectively, whilst but also remaining um, reasonable, trying mm. to be reasonable and trying not to fall into the trap of... Um, losing my perspective on stuff. I think that as soon as you cross the line into the unreasonable, mm. that gives people the excuse not to work yeah. with you as effectively. To disregard everything you say. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, yeah. um, swearing, you know, losing you, all of that, mm. it, it just then, it undoes so much hard work mm. that you're trying, you know, trying to build those relationships. Yeah. That, and that's it, you know, trying to permanently be reasonable whilst actually, like, EHCP gate still going on. Yeah, yeah. And and oh. it is not reasonable now. And yet and I am yeah. still reasonable. being reasonable. I don't even think that it's a, whether you're reasonable or not, I think it's a, even a perceived reasonability. Mm, you know, like yeah. a perceived reasonability from the other side um, of, you know, as a, is a if a practitioner perceives you reasonably or not whether you actually are being reasonable or not because in your in your instance reasonable is actually to throw a hissy fit you know yeah. reasonable is actually to be like actually you, we're way beyond deadlines and yeah. you have not produced anything of of substance yeah. and my child still has no provision sorted yeah. um and and their deadlines which they set have well and truly gone and nothing's happened so you're well within your rights to be cross about it but we're not allowed to be cross because no. if we're cross we can be perceived as unreasonable and yep. if we're perceived as unreasonable as you two have just said everything we've said ever <laughs> comes yeah. into comes into comes into question people take these heuristic we use this phrase in psychology heuristics which is like this it's kind of mental shortcut and i think it's really hard to undo a mental shortcut a heuristic of um a practitioner thinking oh that parent's unreasonable and that's yeah. that's it that's done that that's that you are yeah, the unreasonable yeah. parent um it, even if that was one time one place simple stuff works as a family run world leading provider of positioning equipment and postural care training their mission is to keep people feeling comfortable and protect their bodies from avoidable and devastating changes in body shape. Simple Stuff Works puts people and their families at the centre of postural care by making everything as accessible as possible. You can check out their YouTube channel for free access to training and their website www.simplestuffworks.co.uk for more downloadable resources. That's www.simplestuffworks.co.uk uk there there is this extreme of when things go bad and we're going to think about that in a second but what are the more subtle undercurrents can you think of any subtle undercurrents and we're going to think about parents and practitioners firstly with parents that you hear parents talk about that basically um, identifies practitioners or the services that we use as families as other and bad and or whatever 
it might be. Can you think of some of the little roots of where some of this stuff comes from or, or some of the symptoms that you see? I think one thing that I see regularly um, and probably exacerbated on social media is that battle narrative, that mm. battle language. As soon as you're talking about us and them, you are in a position where you are othering the service that you are supposed to be hopefully collaborating and working with. And if you go in with that precedent, then that's a very hard precedent to undo. And that is, I think that is exacerbated by multiple parents talking to multiple parents and also exacerbated by a system that makes us fight. So, you mm. know, it is it is a reality, but if we exacerbate that with battle narratives and battle language, oh, I'm a warrior, um, you know, I have to fight for this, um, you have to fight really hard to get everything, all those kind of, yeah, those war, that war language is really unhelpful. What, what would you, what would you say though is the alternative to the war language? Because I, I, I agree, I completely agree and I think it, it, it is othering and it's, and it's um, destructive but when so just this week um close friend trying to get um uh ehcp assessment knocked back at the first hurdle goes back in again um you know kind of and 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 like i was i'd go for like armed with the knowledge that she needs in order to challenge that decision to fight that decision and straight away they say oh yeah go on then do you know what i mean because and it's like they've oh right you're a parent that's going to that's mm-hmm. going to do the homework so we're going to have to do this assessment what what's the alternative and she talked the reason I'm thinking about that is because she talked about a battle that this was because her little boy's young she talked about a battle how do we how can we start a conversation to say have you thought about it not being a battle when it is a battle like it's a battle <laughs> yeah the thing with the battle narrative is it it you only have battles with enemies. Mm. So, and I guess one of the things is um, also when you're in a battle, you lose the humanity of mm. um, the conversation. In some ways, I don't have a problem with battling a system that is fundamentally flawed. Mm. But what I think is unhelpful is when you start or or what happens is that that narrative seeps into the relationships yeah and then as soon as you start seeing the people that are trying to you know support you whether that's badly or with not enough resources or whether that's doing their very very best whichever you know whatever version it's it, if as soon as you put your stake in the ground and they put their stake in the ground you're losing energy that could go towards finding a better outcome Mm -hmm. so it's about um we i want to change this system so it's in some ways it's i always come back to listening to people Mm -hmm. and recognizing that this stuff that we talked about last week of the positive regard some of the emails i send is like and i don't deliver you know it can't maybe it can look like passive aggressive i don't intend it to be um sometimes i do and i'm trying really (laughs) hard not to um but it's like okay so this is what i understand by what you said this is what I understand from the legislation or the statutory responsibilities of the duties. This is what I experience mm. in my own life and my child's needs, mm-hmm. my things. Can you explain to me 
this is what I thought was the next step as yeah. to how that person gets support. Can mm-hmm. you help me in working out what, if it's not you, who do I go to? If it's not this, yeah. what is it? So mm-hmm. it's about flipping it into being us getting the right outcome together rather than I'm going to come and fight you so you can still go armed with the information Mm. but so that you can join their team and work out because maybe that's all that person needed Mm -hmm. maybe that person had to you know had some random box to tick yeah that we didn't you know they're fighting their own battles so how do we um, do the language that puts all of us on the same team? One of the things that I've seen, Lucy, is on Facebook and stuff, is this kind of parents come onto forums and go, right, so the doctor said this, and but I've come here to all the experts to find out really what's going on and yeah. really what's true. And I totally get the camaraderie, again, war language, the camaraderie around this shared experience with other parents but what's really unhelpful is that it's then othering the practitioner is is this it's undermining this trust stuff it's undermining the fact that those people whether they've got good days bad days whatever are are not there to do it wrong i think that's really interesting um and i think that possibly your journey to becoming a parent of a disabled child has something to do with that because if I think about how I became a parent of a disabled child, there's nobody that I can look to to blame for that because mm. it was a diagnosis. It was, mm. you know, it came later. There was, it was nobody's fault. If it's anybody's mm-hmm. fault, it's, you know, kind of in the recesses of my brain, it's my fault because it's probably mm. some genetic thing, you know, all that stuff. But I wonder whether the, like a tricky start in life, you know, as as your boy had, um, mm. Rachel, whether that um, ever, you know, without a lot of therapy, well, whether that changing. sets up yeah. a, a fundamental lack of trust yeah. between the parent and the, and the practitioners around them. The people that I know who went through the process of um, making claims for their child because of negligence or whatever the emotional toll on that mm. and the the necessary othering it's horrific you know, for yeah. that it's a horrific is, process is, is, a, is a massive yeah. it is and yeah. and that's not either good or it's not either no. right or wrong it no, is no. hard though yeah. and it's traumatic mm. um and so it can fuel uh, mm. a lens and a perspective that is very difficult to shift that in in a, in basically plants people in a mm. in a very toxic narrative and within that process I mean and you're also looking at a process that lasts for years yeah so like an average of mm. what 11 years I think it is yeah. for, to go through that and Crazy. and while that's going on it's so monumentally adversarial mm. yeah. I don't know that you can ever come out of that Kind of, and without all of, of us say, having Phew. battle scars exactly <laughs> yeah there's a human aspect of us wanting to blame somebody mm. rather than a system and I, I noticed this significantly when Brex broke his hip Stu was really cross and was really frustrated and was more 
that frustration and crossness and anger and fury at the fact that somebody had let our child down so monumentally was exacerbated by the fact there wasn't one person to direct it to. Mm. Um, because he was like, it's just going to get absorbed in a systemic, like, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll be angry at the whole place. Uh, and there's no one person. And he really wanted one person to be angry at. And there was a real, like, need for that. And I wonder whether that's just a human aspect that we want some somebody to be responsible because that makes that easier for us yeah. than than whether then this was just a not a you know this was just a random thing that happened I don't yeah. know and do you think that that then comes from the hurt of that because that leads mm-hmm. to punishment doesn't it if there is yeah, one exactly. person yeah. then they can, there can be punished. an outcome there can yeah. be, a, there can then be then justice yeah. justice exactly but where, where it's sucked up by a system or there's no one to blame, maybe we consciously or subconsciously think about blame as, as that, like, oh, well, then we can get justice and there'll be appeasement and there'll be, like, some sort of exchange, which means I feel better. Born at the Right Time is an organisation focused on bridging the gap between families of people with complex needs and the practitioners who support them. We are all working so hard and we can find ourselves feeling as though we're working against each other. So through CPD certified training, workshops, advocacy and influencing policy, the Born at the Right Time team are passionate about seeing a cultural change which leads to improvements in service delivery and a better lived experience of people caring for those with complex disabilities. So go to bornattherighttime.com for more information on professional courses, parent workshops, or buying one of my books, The Skies Are Munder and Shattered. Visit www.bornattherighttime.com to help in bridging the gap between those delivering your service and the people who are using it. So what does this toxicity or this tribalism, um, I think it becomes as much as I think there are, we talk about finding our tribe in a very positive way um, mm-hmm. from a family point of view. I think uh, there is an element to which that can tip over to tribalism where everybody hunkers down and mm-hmm. starts um, protecting their own and bringing up the drawbridges. And that I feel feel that happens more with practitioners and I think there's reason for that as in they're more likely to be in a system that will put their necks on the line you know if this because this is if the system is this so we as parents and families want to attribute blame and but realize there is just the system because it is more inevitably it's more than one decision it's lots Mm -hmm. of decisions and circumstances Mm. whatever but when the system's up against the wall, actually what it does is exactly the same thing. It mm-hmm. finds the person to blame, whether yeah. that's a practitioner scapegoat, mm-hmm. whether that's the parents, whether that's whatever. But they want a person to blame so that the systems that support the services aren't the ones at fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what kind of things have you heard or see that, shows some of that when when it has flipped over into a kind of toxic tribalism for for practitioners i think one really obvious thing that springs to mind for me is that 
where I live, um, if you have a sense that your child has any autistic traits, you cannot access, you cannot access the pathway to start that assessment unless you have been on a parenting course, which, <gasps> yeah, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> Uh, which is mind-blowingly tribal and attributing blame to parents that, you know, will just vet you that you're not shit parents before we then take you seriously. Um, Yeah, it's horrific. Uh, So in my job, I literally have to call parents and say to them, I completely agree with you. I hear all your concerns about your child having autistic traits. Um, I'm going to put a referral into the the kind of autism assessment pathway but to do that I need you to go on a parenting course <gasps> sorry um oh my yeah. goodness isn't that bad that's awful and the thing no. is and this is what this is what a little bit what bothers me as well no professional that I have worked with um has challenged that and I think there's there's a tribal mentality as professionals that you just accept the information you get I when I have five minutes spare I have every intention of calling the autism pathway and asking them their rationale for that and saying I am not happy to put parents on a parenting course when that 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 is not an additional that's an additional stress that they don't need because they're dealing with a child who's potentially autistic um you know I, I literally feel ethically compromised mm. to do that mm-hmm. when I know that there's you know when I know and everyone else knows that there's nothing wrong with their parenting it's that they have a child that's and presenting you're not asking the teachers traits. that have those concerns to go no. on a teaching course no I know right it's awful but the tribal mentality comes in when everybody just accepts yeah. the, sy- the yeah. systemic yeah. way we oh that's just a tick that's just, thing. That's just the way Sorry. we do it okay yeah. why has no one challenged this I, I'm ethically compromised to do this for a parent when I know they're stretched already and they're dealing with a hell of a lot at home that they they do not need, um, nor probably want to go on a parenting course. Yeah, Imagine yeah. what that and it sets from the off. Yeah, it sets the it, othering straight away. Yeah, as well. it sets the othering straight away, and from the off, it is it is seeding doubt in that mm. parent from the very beginning. Mm, are they really autistic, or are you just a bit of a shit parent and you just need a bit of help? Um, which all of which I find incredibly um, ethically, morally, all wrong. Mm. Uh, I haven't had that conversation yet, but I fully intend to have a conversation. But I am not. Um, I am very unique in that. I am. I am not joined by colleagues in wanting to like challenge that thing. I think that comes back though to what you were just saying, Rachel, about the system um, will very quickly turn on itself you know like kind of not itself it will turn on the people within the system Mm -hmm. um i know lots of practitioners who have been in that situation where they've challenged from a from a professional perspective obviously i tend to work with physios ot's nurses um and i do know um practitioners who do challenge some of the kind of uh some of the criteria for getting access Mm -hmm. to 24 hour postural support and things like that you know like there, there are some bonkers ones you know like kind of this whole idea that you have to have developed some change in body shape before <laughs> you can access um the support rather than looking at risk factors it's just crazy yeah, stuff yeah yeah but when people do challenge um i don't think that the systems that they're, they're so defensive yeah that that they you know 
Um, it's like you stick your head above the parapet. Is that the word? Then it just parapet. gets taken. Yeah, it just gets and taken you, off. I've had people say, you're one of the sensible ones. Now, that might be said as like a compliment to me, but what that tells me is that they all think that actually most of the parents are the non-sensible ones. Oh, the nutty, crazy lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't generally scream and shout. Um, I get very uh, assertive and articulate and um, I write emails that say, you always... And you never. And then I have to edit them and sit on them for 24 hours. Because sometimes it's, it's really important to write this email that you're never going to send. Um, lesson learned, don't put their address in it. Do yeah, it to avoid yeah. address or just do it on a Word document yeah. or wherever. And then just, just let it all come out. Because <laughs> it yes. needs to go somewhere. Um, when you're a practitioner who's finding your work very, very stressful and you're under resourced and you're trying really, really hard and you potentially don't agree with some of the management decisions or some of the funding decisions mm -hmm. and you feel that people are, you have that decision between, like you say, sticking your neck out or ducking because stones are going to get thrown and are you going to be the person that aligns with the masses or are you be, going to be the person that stands out and potentially becomes the scapegoat for this particular situation you know when your children need fed and yeah. when you've got a mortgage to pay, mortgage to pay. Yeah. that's a really really tricky um decision to make and i think um sarah and i were talking to a practitioner earlier today who was in tears over one of the people that she supports and w we were saying we do not give we do not give enough credence to the emotional toil toll that practitioners have i listened to an um a radio interview where someone was saying to a gp you know parents you know families are finding and patients find it really hard to get through and the gp was saying can i explain where we're coming from and this has been hard for us and this has been hard for us and this has been hard for us and then the person was like well what does what does that mean are you saying that, that, that patients haven't found it hard and it's like no these are two different conversations mm -hmm. but we do that don't we we're like well practitioners can't have felt it hard because we felt it hard too it's like no we mm -hmm. can all say it's been it's difficult really for ourselves yeah. we can all listen to each other and say our the practitioners finding it hard doesn't minimize our hard mm -hmm. yeah you know we're not running a, we're not competing it's against not each other yeah. for for um gradient of most difficult because mm -hmm. there's plenty of practitioners who've got children with complex needs as well, who can step it up to the line and, and run that race. But that race is going to serve nobody. What is going to serve us is to listen and to find a new way of understanding where everyone's coming from. There is so much more to say about the relationships between parents and practitioners. But we're going to carry on that conversation next week and you'll have to wait to hear what happened in Mousegate. 
But until then, thank you so much for coming back week on week for your emails and messages. If you do want to get in touch, you can do so by emailing TSWUPodcast at gmail.com. That's TSWUPodcast at gmail.com. It would be so great if you could share this podcast with your peers who might find it helpful, then rate, review and follow the podcast wherever it is that you tune in. Until we meet again next week, we hope your days have moments of goodness, whatever skies you're under.